When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and today I once again have my longtime NBA Deep Dives co-host back on the program, and we are here today to talk about one of the higher-rated prospects in this class, and certainly, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but a part of his skill set that has really surprised me in a positive way in the young going of the college basketball season. So... I'm here, of course, with Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Tuesday afternoon? Uh, I would be a whole lot better if uh, Croatia wouldn't have just gotten knocked out of the World Cup. Um, but life goes on, tournament goes on, sports go on. So I, uh, overall, I'm fantastic. College basketball is starting to heat up. We're starting to get out of these uh, you know, second round of tune-up games and back into conference play, uh, which, God, I desperately needed. So just very much <laughs> looking forward to the rest of the season. So we're going to talk about Baylor's Keontae George today, and we are going to start out by discussing his playmaking, because that was the topic of your most recent Friday Screener article. And I sort of hinted at this a minute ago, but his playmaking has been really a positive surprise for me. I think I was lower than most of the No Ceilings cohort on Keontae George heading into the year. And that's despite the fact that I'm often the most optimistic when it comes to combo guards figuring it out playmaking-wise. And, you know, that's a huge part of why I'm as high on Nick Smith Jr. as I am. And yet, somehow with Keontae, I thought of him so much more as a shooting guard that, you know, maybe would be able to pick up combo guard skills, but that it was going to be a struggle for him. And I'm saying that as someone who's usually optimistic on this kind of thing. And yet... I've been, again, incredibly pleasantly surprised by what I've seen from Keontae George's playmaking so far to start the year. But I'm sure you think similarly, and I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts. What are your thoughts on what you've seen from Keontae George's playmaking so far on the tape? Well, just as kind of a starting point, I think you and I were or had a similar view of him coming into this season um, because based on, you know, the 10 to 12 IMG games that I saw of him over the summer, the vast majority of his set, of his success seemed to come in that off-ball role. And I was hesitant uh, to really buy in on his kind of space creation. Um, it felt a lot like the Jaden Hardy tape that from his high school where awesome shooter, but isn't this elite athlete struggles a little bit to kind of create space for himself and separate from defenders and really doesn't consistently show these high level playmaking ability that can compensate for that lack of on ball creation and that lack of size at the two guard spot. So I was really confused with him coming into the year. I've had him top 10 all year because I thought the shooting was that good. And I thought there was, we're kind of selling that because he's starting to impact the game 
in so many different areas that aren't just shooting and coming into this Baylor offense that for the last, you know, five, six years has really been this three guard lineup with heavy ball movement, heavy player movement. We knew that he was going to be asked to do a lot of different stuff than he was allowed or asked to do at IMG. And I was really excited to see that. I had no idea how that would turn out for him. And honestly, I, even though the shooting numbers are down, I think he's shown me way more than I expected coming into the season. And he showed a really impressive ability to impact the game in a lot of various aspects that aren't just scoring. And for someone at his size, at his position, I think that's crucial. And the biggest one um, on offense so far has been the playmaking. It's not, oh, this guy could be a point guard level playmaking where he's really dictating the offense and running the show, but it's, okay, this guy can run a secondary pick and roll. He can create off of movement. He has really good vision. He's unselfish. He's moving the ball. He has good vision and accuracy and creativity with it, where as that secondary creator, I I am buying way more into that ability for him down the road than I did coming into the year. So let's just start with the basics on George and his passing. And I know that you would agree that assists aren't the be-all, end-all of passing or playmaking, but those numbers are surprising to me, so I do at least want to discuss them here before we go into a more in-depth breakdown of his playmaking skills. But he's averaging 4.2 assists per game and has an assist rate of 28.5% as of the time that you release the piece. And it's not just that that is better than I expected from him, but really the more surprising part is that's the highest for any freshman at a high major program this season. And if I had to bet money coming into the year on who would have the best assist rate among the freshmen in this class, I mean, I probably would have put my money on Jalen hood Shafino, who's close behind, but still, you know, six percentage points off where George has been. And again, you know, I'm someone who tends to be more optimistic on the playmaking potential for these combo guard types. And Yet with George, I mean, he's making more and more of a case. You brought up him as a secondary playmaker, and that I think he's already you know proven to a pretty decent degree. But you know, if he continues to develop like this as a playmaker, I don't think it's entirely out of the question that he actually does become a primary point at some point in his NBA future. You know, depending on where he ends up, and especially given the rest of his skill set, if he could be a primary even for some portion of the time he's out there on the floor playmaking wise, I mean, that'll be huge for determining his NBA future. Yeah, I, I don't think it's entirely out of the question down the road, um, especially like running a second unit. Like, I, I think he could definitely do that. Like if he's a starting two guard and then point guard comes off and now he kind of turns into that de facto point guard. Um, I, I, I don't want to rule that out in his future. Um, the overall assist rate really shocked me because I was like, God, like, he's just moving the ball really well. He's finding open teammates. And, you know, I was just curious. So I went on Bartorovic and it was like, oh my God, like the, I was not expecting him to be number one out of this group. Um, especially since I didn't think passing was a strength of his coming into the year. So I was like, okay, wow. I, I love being proved wrong immediately. It makes life <laughs> so much easier going forward. Um, so I, I'm still not quite sure I'm there where it's like, okay, this guy can really run an offense um, because a lot of what his playmaking kind of stems from is running off of these DHOs and running off of those second side pick and rolls and attacking closeouts, running in transition. So maybe a couple of years down the line, not you, you obviously never want to rule anything out with players of his caliber, 
maybe it evolves into that more kind of diverse playmaking role where it's not just kind of creating out of um, encountering defenses or defensive rotations and defensive movement, but where he's really dictating that action and really fully manipulating those defenders at a much higher and more consistent level. So if he does end up turning into that primary point guard type, I think the biggest factor for him is going to be his pick and roll playmaking. And that's also where you started the piece. So let's dive into that really quickly. You brought this up, but I think it's really the key to note here is he already looks so comfortable running the pick and roll, which, you know, again, being optimistic about his playmaking heading into the season, you know, I could think, okay, he'll be able to have some degree of comfort running that by the end of the season, given that he's going to be running the pick and roll a lot more at Baylor than he was at IMG. But it surprised me just how quickly he's looked as comfortable as he's looked as a lead guy in a pick and roll. And again, you know, if he does end up having more primary on ball responsibilities at the NBA level, it's going to be because of his success in the pick and roll, or certainly in my opinion, more because of that than anything else. Yeah. That, and that was out of all of his pick and roll, you know, growth so far this season, the comfort and kind of versatility out of the pick and roll was what surprised me the most because we, we frequently see guys come in and they're really effective at running just that two man game where them and the roller, they're good at manipulating, you know, those four people when you include the defenders and, you know, I, sorry to go back to, to him again, but that's kind of where we saw Jaden Hardy's passing improvement really take a leap last year where him and Michael Foster developed this really strong two-man game, but there wasn't really ever that threat of Hardy finding those kickouts and, you know, re reading that, uh, that low man and manipulating them and finding that skip pass to the opposite corner. George is already doing that and he's really comfortable and he's just really showing off his floor awareness because he's reading that guy first and he's doing a really good job of using his strength to kind of snake through the paint keep his defender in jail when they do go over the screen because given his shooting abilities they have to go over the screen and then now he's in a it's not just a 2v1 situation because he's reading the rest of the floor so it's in a 3v2 situation where he's now manipulating the drop defender and the the help side defender and really pretty consistently making the right read out of that on whether to shoot find the roller or make that skip pass to the corner. I think the skip passes to the corner are really huge for this because, you know, as you mentioned, there are quite a few guards who can, you know, play an effective two-man game. And you'll have to bring up Jaden Hardy approximately 7,000 more times before you reach the number of times that I've brought up De'Aaron Fox on this podcast. So I'm going to, you know, let it slide there. But, you know, I think it is really an indicative kind of comparison in the sense that, you know, okay, it's one thing to be able to, you know, work a two-man game with reading the options out of, okay, you know, my big man sets the pick here, he's going to roll, I can kick it to him on the roll, I can, you know, create space with a step back, get to an easy mid-range jumper, which, you know, maybe more for other players than for George, that specific skill set. But, you know, the idea of basically being, okay, I know all the options that feed forward from this one particular pick and roll play with this one particular big man who I'm comfortable with. It's entirely another level to be able to say, okay, you know, big man dives here. That means the help man is going to sink from the corner, which means the pass to the corner three is open. That's the read I'm going to make rather than just... And, you know, it's funny because I think I probably watch football the least of all of the people at No Ceilings, American football, that is. Um, and yet I think, you know, the one example that is indicative here is 
if you have a quarterback who can make two reads and then that's it, by the time those first two reads are shut off, the guy's screwed, right? Either he's going to go down for a loss or he's just going to desperately try and scramble and see if he can figure something out. Whereas with George, you know, if you shut down the big man rolling to the lane and you keep him off the three-point line out of the pick and roll, the fact that he knows how to read the corner shooters at least is you know already a huge step forward and you know if he gets to the point where you know he's not just making the read to the corner if the help defender drops but you know he also you know is hitting cutters who are maybe coming in from the wings that's i think another huge step forward that he could potentially make but already just his ability to see and hit the guy in the corner is a huge step forward from just sort of being able to run a simple two-man game which is enough if you're a secondary creator but not really enough if you're going to be asked to be the primary guy on the ball yeah and like it 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 feels or i know it seems that oh okay so you add in one more guy that he's capable of passing to like does that really change things it's like yeah it does because it makes defense that much harder for those two guys who are who really have to gauge whether or how much they commit to the ball especially with someone with george's scoring abilities if that first point of attack defender gets taken out of the taken out of the play by the screen and baylor's bigs are really good screeners so that frequently happens and george gets into the paint pretty regularly with that man trailing him and then uses his wide frame to keep him on his back now george can has the ability to finish at the rim finish in the mid-range pull it back out for a pull-up three, hit the roller for a lob or a pocket pass, and make that skip pass to the corner. So the those two help defenders have so much processing that they have to go through based on what George is doing with his movements, where he is on the floor, where his eyes are looking, where the ball is in his hands, and where they are, who's in the corner. Is it someone they can help off of in Baylor's three-guard system? It typically isn't. So when they do then you know all right so they help off and drop down to thamba then now adam flagler's wide open in the corner for a three you don't want to give up that shot because it's almost just as good for baylor as that thamba layup it's and this, this is oh sorry no go ahead i was just gonna say this is you know asinine but i think a point worth making given your discussion from earlier like there's a difference between being able to succeed in two-on-one situations versus mm-hmm. being able to make it work in three-on-two situations or even four-on-three. You know, if you, like, get the opportunity on the break and you're working with not just, you know, the guy who's running with you, but also keeping in mind where the trailer is, you know, keeping in mind when it might be a good time to stop, bring the ball back out, and then, you know, hit someone in the corner as they're running down in transition, like just the number of options that you open up for yourself as a playmaker. If you're not just looking for one guy all the time, it's pretty dramatic. And we've seen that already from Keontae George in the early going this season. Yeah. And and when you consistently utilize all of those different options, it keeps, you know, it puts the defenders even more on their heels because it's, it's not like he's just looking for his own shot every time. So defenders know that they can step to him a little more aggressively or a little more regularly, or that he prefers that skip pass versus the pocket pass. He's utilizing all of it and he's just taking what the defense gives him and he's playing really unselfish basketball for a lot of the season. And it's really paying dividends for his overall offensive growth. So I wanted to sort of move on to the fourth clip in the piece because I thought it was particularly instructive in terms of, you know, delineating George's playmaking, which is, and I'm just going to read directly from the piece here for a line. George isn't the most explosive athlete, so the utilization of screens will likely be a common tool for him. Now that 
sentence in that particular paragraph, I think is incredibly important because something that, you know, I talk about all the time on this podcast is how if you're not the greatest athlete in the world, your ability to use multiple different speeds with your dribble is, I mean, it's necessary, honestly. And, you know, I'm going to go back to my well from earlier and make the 7,001st Deer and Fox reference on this podcast. But, you know, in his first season in the NBA, he basically had one speed, which was faster than pretty much everybody else in the NBA, but also was only the one speed. And, you know, the more that he got comfortable with using hesitation dribbles, with, you know, pulling the ball back in transition sometimes, getting to mid-range step backs, that really, really opened up the rest of his game. And so when you're talking about someone like Keontae George or, you know, the examples that we've used all the time on here, Luka Doncic, James Harden, you know, those types, sure, they might not be the fastest guy in the world, but if they can decelerate and create pockets of space because their defender's going one way and they're going back the other, you know, that's still... A helpful and useful way to create space, even if you're not the John Walls or the De'Aaron Foxes of the NBA. And, you know, going back to the classic Tyler Rucker phase of it takes time, you know, it often takes these point guards a lot of time to figure out this particular set of skills. And, you know, this season, I think that I've been most impressed with Scoot Henderson's ability to change speeds. But, you know, part of that is he also just has a much faster top gear than Keontae. And so for Keontae, it's even more imperative that he, you know, is able to use multiple different speeds out there and not just in terms of creating his own shot, but also creating shots for others. And that I think has been a huge part of why his handoff game has been so successful. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on how he's been able to sort of work different speeds into his game, especially when it comes to handoffs rather than sort of more traditional pick and roll plays? Yeah. And it, it just feels really mature. Um, like if I knew nothing about him and just, you know, watched, uh, I believe it was that Virginia clip uh, that you were referencing. Um, like if I had just watched that game and knew nothing about him, I'd be like, all right, this guy's probably like a, maybe a sophomore, but probably like a junior. Um, and you know, he's, 10 games into his freshman career. So it's just, it, it highlights his overall processing speed because he's not this explosive athlete. And I don't mean that as an indictment. It's just who he is as a player, but there are a lot of different facets that go into athleticism and it's not all just vertical explosiveness. Um, a lot of it is the ability to decelerate. And we, you know, you and I have talked about that for years now and how important that is and how, and just how how there are so many you know primary and secondary ball handlers and creators in the nba who thrive more off of deceleration than just pure acceleration and his ability to utilize that body control that change of speed um and quickly change directions into that open pocket of space while processing exactly what the help defender in that in the handoff is doing along with the low man and where they're positioning themselves in relation to the corner shooter and the roller. It's, it's a lot, it's a lot to really run through your mind in you know, the blink of an eye and process all of it and do it flawlessly. And he's 18 and doing it. It's really, really impressive. And when players or coaches talk about, you know, the game slowing down for them, that's, you know, really what it is more than anything else is, okay, I've gotten comfortable with how quickly players are moving. And it's not just, you know, I'm focused on the one guy I'm guarding on defense, or I'm just focused on, okay, he's my role man for this play. 
you know, and that sort of brings up a conversation that we were having earlier where, you know, it's one thing to just be able to work a really solid two-man game. It's another thing to, you know, sort of have an understanding of where everybody is on the floor and, you know, not just the understanding of where everybody is, but where they're moving to and therefore where the gaps in the defense are going to be, particularly as a playmaker. And, you know, that's sort of where I want to get into a different part of the piece when you're, you know, talking about his ability to hit cutters. And I think that he's shown a lot more as someone who can feed out to corner three-point shooters at this point than he really has as someone who's, you know, hitting cutters precisely and time on target, you know, on their way to the rim. But that's something that he has shown a decent proficiency at doing this season. And, you know, the more the game slows down for him, the more, you know, comfortable he gets with the awareness of where everybody's going to be on the court at all times, then I think the easier it'll be for him to find cutters. And, you know, we have talked about cutting so, so many times on this podcast and how, you know, how interesting it is to evaluate cutting on both ends, you know, both in terms of how good you are as a cutter and also how good you are at defending cutters on the other side. But in terms of playmaking, I mean, it's the kind of thing where the more comfortable George gets with where everybody's going to be, the easier it's going to be for him to know, okay, this is where, you know, Flotamba is going to cut from the nail down to the basket. And, you know, if I throw the lob here, then that's going to be better than trying to throw a bounce pass through the lane. It's the kind of thing where, it's an area of growth for him, certainly going forward, but it's also something that he's shown really promising signs of already this year in a way that I don't think either of us, I certainly was not anticipating to see from him, you know, this early on in his freshman campaign. Yeah. And I think where the big difference between his ability to kind of find cutters as compared to like those skip passes is with those skip passes, he knows that there's always someone in that opposite corner. So basically, no matter what he's doing and no matter what kind of crowd he's in, he knows that if he makes that skip pass to the opposite corner, he has a teammate there. With the cutting, it's a little more impromptu and it's a little more spur of the moment. And when you're in traffic, you don't it's, it's a little tougher to see, especially when you don't have those years of experience playing together. So, you know, once he gets in, in into an NBA team or maybe even later this year, just that chemistry with these guys continues to grow in that realm because he'll he'll just get a better sense of those guys' tendencies on when they cut um, because they'll have that playtime together. Um, and he won't have to rely so much on seeing it before he, or he can be a little more proactive with it. Um, I think the instances where we have seen him be really accurate or effective at finding cutters is when he's on the perimeter. And then the, the lack of size doesn't really factor in because he can see the entire floor and it's all laid out in front of him. And then he really displays his pa- his passing accuracy because I, th- there are some passes that he makes where he just threads the needle and puts guys just right at the rim, right in stride. And it's perfect. He makes life super easy for them so i i think it's something where i i don't think he's necessarily incapable of it if he never really grows into it it wouldn't shock me because he just doesn't have the size that you know guys i'm not comparing them as passers but like the size that like lamella ball or luka Doncic have they are able to see the entire floor at all times and once Keontae kind of gets into the trees he's going to just naturally struggle with that because of his physical limitations. But with that skip pass to the corner, someone's always going to be there, whether he he can see them or not with the cutting. That's just where reps and experience and chemistry really come into play. I think it's really important that you mentioned the 
passing from the perimeter factor of this. And that I think is easiest to see in the last clip that you put in the article, which is basically just George standing out on the perimeter and firing a 30 foot pass in traffic all the way to the basket. And, you know, you see something like that and it's like, okay, this is really impressive. You know, this is the kind of thing where, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about it a decent amount of the difference between guys who just make the right read with the passes versus guys who are willing to try something a little bit more adventurous. And I think the player we talked about that the most with last year was Alondis Williams in the sense that, you know, maybe this is a really risky pass, but it's the kind of pass where if you can make that with any sort of consistency, it just totally breaks defenses. And so, you know, seeing George make that kind of feed, you know, on the one hand, it would be nice to see him be able to, you know, make that kind of pass in traffic off the dribble as opposed to just, you know, slinging it in from the perimeter. But the flip side is like, if you can make that kind of pass from 30 feet out, that's a really solid sign already. Like just purely that one pass is, you know, not only his recognition of the situation, but also his willingness to make that pass. And, you know, as you can see in the clip, it results in a very easy basket. Yeah, and I, I just loved the confidence with it, too. Like, they, there was zero hesitation when he got that ball back. And just right when he touched it, it was coming out of his hands. And he was giving it right back to, uh, I believe it was Thamba, who was rolling to the rim. And I, he, there was, I mean this as a compliment, but there, there was cockiness behind it where he just kind of flipped it out and then started backpedaling because he's like, yeah, I just did that. And even though we only get kind of flashes of those from him there, we're getting enough of them where it's like, okay, there, there's some real stuff here to build off of. So even though we only get it in these kind of certain areas of the floor right now, there's recognition, there's accuracy, there's confidence with this passing that, you know, down the line, okay, we can move him into different areas of the floor and utilize those same characteristics to create for other shot opportunities for the rest of the team. So you talk about confidence and that's a good way to transition into talking about the rest of his offensive game. And, you know, there were certainly questions among the two of us, at least about his playmaking heading into the season, but something that I think pretty much all draft values were relatively confident in was his shooting touch. And, so far this season, on the one hand, he's shooting just under 40% from the floor and just under 33% from three-point range. On the other hand, he's taken the vast majority of his shots from three-point range. His three-point rate is basically 60%, so, you know, more than half his shots coming from deep. And the other thing, you know, I've beaten this point to death, but I'm going to beat it to death one more time just for the sake of the show, you know, my idea of partial free throw truthing that in the sense of, you know, even a really good shooter can have a couple misses from three that sort of tanks their percentage. But if you can show that you have the touch from the free throw line, you know, oftentimes free throw percentage numbers actually translate better to NBA three point percentage than college three point percentage, because, you know, again, a couple bad games or even just a couple bad shots and there's enough variance in the three point shooting to make, you know, a 33% shooter, from a 38% shooter, right? If George hits a couple more three-pointers, then, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, he's at 38% from deep on a really heavy number of attempts. This guy's an amazing shooter. You know, if you look at the free throw percentage, he's shooting 86% from the line, you know, getting there, he could get there, he could certainly serve to get there more than three times a game, but, you know, he's knocking them down. And especially when you combine that with his confidence from long range, his willingness to put those shots up, I mean, 
you know, a couple of hot weeks and all of a sudden we were talking about a guy who's in the high 30s, three-point percentage rise rather than the low 30s, three-point percentage wise. And I think, you know, that's more of what we're talking about when we talk about Keontae George as a shooter. He's certainly, I think, better than the 33% he's been putting up from long range to start the year. I I have zero concerns about his shot. Um, he he showed enough at IMG in terms of the variety and difficulty. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, that it's like okay, th- this dude can shoot. I, I think where some of the struggles this year uh, kind of come from, obviously, I, I think the prolonged distance factors in a little bit. But he's also being asked to do way more on offense with the passing that we just talked about. Uh, the overall movement, the initiation, the ball handling, just he's at being asked to do a lot of different stuff that tires you out, honestly, that it it requires more physical exertion and that can, you know, wear down the legs and take away from cleaner looks. If he was, if he was just spotting up off ball where, you know, if he went to, I don't know, just throwing a team out there, Alabama, and was playing that traditional two guard spot and playing off of Quinterly and Sears and Brandon Miller and was just, you know, catch and shoot, just be that off ball scorer. I think we would see a three point percentage probably in the forties, but he's being asked to do different stuff that is growing his game at a much more effective and, you know, variable variety where it's good for his overall growth. So it, it wouldn't shock me if we end up seeing him in the low thirties at the end of the year from three, but I also don't think that that should be a real indictment on him as a shooter, because we've already seen what he can do as a shooter in a more uh, refined role. And now that he's being asked to do a little bit of everything on both ends of the floor, I I just think it's good for his overall growth and just part of the kind of learning curve. It's funny because the player that I actually most recently wrote about, Jordan Hawkins, you know, if you put Keontae George in that Jordan Hawkins role where Hawkins is, you know, sometimes he can make those kind of passes that, you know, show, wow, this guy's got a lot more in his passing toolkit than I thought he did. But I mean, for the most part, he's almost exclusively off ball on the offensive end, just being asked to, you know, occasionally create his own shot from beyond the arc, but he's just like Keontae putting up a vast majority of his shots from three point range. And, you know, he's up to 42 and a half percent on the season from three point range. And, you know, I think if Keontae George were given a similar diet of shots in a similar sort of situation, then we'd be looking at a much different number from his 33% mark. But, you know, both of them are being relied on pretty heavily on the defensive end for their respective teams. But Keontae just also has a, vastly more inflated offensive role that you know again as you said you know slightly more tired legs heading into those three-point shots as opposed to just only being asked to do that you know it's a different ball game in terms of what you're requiring from those players on the offensive end and if they switched roles i mean again i am actually decently high on hawkins as a passer in the long term you know based on some of the plays i've seen from him this year but if you were to swap them, I am quite confident that Keontae would be able to be quite successful in the Hawkins role, and Hawkins would struggle with the amount of on-ball creation responsibilities that George has been tagged with so far. Yeah, and it, it's kind of the similar argument to when people take like a bench player who's playing 12 minutes a game and try to extrapolate their numbers to 36 minutes a game, and they're like, oh my god, look at what this guy could be doing. Like, why isn't he playing more? It's like, well, 
it doesn't always work like that. It doesn't always immediately transfer like that. And some players thrive in different roles. And when you're asked to do more of one thing, you know, it's buckets of energy and you have to kind of consolidate as needed. So as an 18 year old, you know, obviously as you know, when we project forward as a 24, 25 year old, we would hope that he figures a lot of that out and I would expect him to, but as an 18 year old, where it's the first time he's being asked to do all of this stuff on a nightly basis, there's, there's going to be some hurdles and there's going to be some stuff that falters. And honestly, right now, I would much rather see his shooting numbers struggle right now while he succeeds in the passing with the defense, with the at-rim finishing, all of that stuff. I'd like much rather see him continue thriving in that stuff and struggling shooting because I already think he's going to be fine shooting. All the indicators are there. The previous success is there. The fact that he's continuing to grow and succeed in these other areas where I had huge questions about, that is what really gets me excited about him. And, you know, part of the minutes load thing is, you know, sometimes you get the Nikola Jokic after his first couple of years in Denver, you give him an increase in minutes and he's doing exactly the same thing. Or Chris Murray with Iowa this year, you know, Keegan goes to the Sacramento Kings and all of a sudden Chris goes from like 18 minutes a game in a mostly off-ball role to, you know, being a starter and being the primary focal point for the Iowa offense. And surprise, surprise, he's having a very similar year to the year that his twin brother had last year. You know, it's like, on the other hand, sometimes you get the JaVale McGee's of the world, right? Where he's exceptionally effective in 15 minutes of playing time. And if you give him more playing time than that, he doesn't continue to gobble up rebounds at the same rate because he's putting all of his energy into, you know, those two, three stints he has on the floor. And when you give him a lot more playing time than that, you know, <laughs> there's only so much energy that one human being can have, even some of the best conditioned athletes in the entire world that we get at the NBA level. Yeah. So I'm like, I, I, it's just going to be something that he grows into. Obviously I would love for him to be doing what he's already doing and everything else and shoot 40%. That would be the dream. That would be incredible, but he's 18. Like there, there's or maybe 19. I don't know the exact age, but he's in that range. Um, so like there, there are going to be hurdles or are going to be struggles that he has to overcome and Baylor plays a tough schedule. So the, just that exposure to these really quality teams all season long combined with him, being asked to do a lot of different stuff that he's never been asked to consistently do. It's just going to be the best thing for his overall development in the long run. So before we wrap things up, let's just touch quickly on Keontae's defense. And, you know, he was an incredibly impressive defensive talent heading into the season. It's been interesting for me to try and evaluate his defense because I feel like he has not quite been as impressive as I thought he would be on the defensive end, but I also feel like he's been, he's been, I guess it's that I think he's been very solid when I was expecting him to be excellent. He's just been great. So, you know, that's not much of a knock really, but I don't know. I mean, I've been so pleasantly surprised by his passing that I still think I'm higher on him than I was heading into the year, but you know, other than generate turnovers, which he's been very good at, he's been solid on that end, but not spectacular. And maybe I was just overly hopeful, but I feel like I was expecting a little bit more than just really solid from him on that end. But what are your thoughts on his defense? Yeah, that's really interesting because I, I was a little skeptical with the defense coming in. I, I liked how he moved his feet. I thought he played physical, obviously just a really strong player. 
um, and he competed, which, you know, is kind of the bare minimum that you ask for, from these guys. Um, at IMG, I felt like he was at his best when they kept it really simple for him. Like, hey, just defend this guy, chase this guy off screens, don't help off, don't worry about rotating, tagging and recovering, all of that stuff. Um, and that's when I thought he kind of looked best. At Baylor, you can't do that. They ask their guards to do a lot defensively. They ask everyone on that team to do a lot defensively. So I, I think there are going to be just some natural adjustments, but I, I've been really encouraged by his defense. That same sense of physicality, the footwork, the strength, um, his willingness to kind of body guys on drives, it's all there, and it's all there pretty consistently. You already mentioned his kind of defensive playmaking, which has been excellent. Um, I, I think there's some really promising upside with his defense in the long run. I, you know, I'm not saying all NBA defense, but certainly a positive contributor on the defensive end. And from a six, three, two guard, that's rare. You don't get that often, yeah. but his, his willingness to hold his own, to fight, to play physical, um, that, that broad frame of his, it, all factors into someone who could, you know, guard a couple backcourt positions, given that he's only six, three, I believe um, he probably won't be able to scale too far up to, uh, to defend threes, maybe some of them, but the, the footwork and the strength, I think should allow him to guard most ones and twos and just being exposed and thrown in the deep end with this Baylor defensive scheme. I, I think he's going to, quickly grow into a much better overall team defender as well. So that I think, yeah, I think that's the main point for me. I definitely agree with you that, you know, part of the deal with him at IMG is he just got to, you know, be stuck to one guy and say, this is your guy, you know, guard him to the best of your ability. And I think part of that is just, he's so good on the ball that, you know, I think that there's still room for him to grow as an off ball guy. And, you know, maybe that's sort of where more of my, Concerns isn't even right because I still think he's been a very solid defender, especially at his size and in the role that he's been thrown into. I don't know. I guess maybe more of it is just that I hoped to see more from him off ball than I feel like I have. And maybe that's the kind of thing that, you know, by the time we get to say February or March, you know, he's figured out enough as an off ball guy, because, you know, if we're talking about his defense, similarly to how we just talked about his playmaking, Right. I mean, you know, him being a semi-primary playmaker was not something he was tasked with at the high school level. Him being asked to be more of an off-ball guy rather than just, you know, purely an on-ball menace is also sort of a change in role that we've seen for him at Baylor. And, you know, again, given how good his footwork is, given how strong he is, I mean, even as a freshman, pretty much no one is pushing him around unless he gets switched on to someone much bigger than him, which hopefully wouldn't be happening that much at the NBA level. And, you know, even so, I feel like in the longer term, he'll be able to hold his own on switches against, you know, even much bigger players, you know, maybe not as like a assignment for 10 minutes, like go out and guard a power forward. But I don't know. I mean, I see some Marcus Smart in his defense in the sense of you're just not pushing this guy around. You know, even if you've got six inches on him, you're just not pushing him around. And that's the kind of thing where I think shows up more on ball than it does off ball. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like I might be much more positive on his off ball defense by the end of the season than I am now, but maybe it's also just that his on ball stuff is so great that it makes his off ball stuff look not quite as strong by comparison. Yeah. And that, that's certainly a possibility. And, you know, honestly, 
I think as long as he's just not a negative right now defensively, that's plenty good enough and just continues to show signs of improvement and fight and competitiveness. I kind of think that's all he needs to show. I think anything else is just kind of gravy after that. Yeah, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, what we've seen from him overall this season, certainly the unexpected positives of his playmaking for me have been much more impressive than any sort of negative takeaways. I mean, I'm kind of with you in the sense that I think he's a much better shooter than his raw numbers would show at this point. And, you know, even then, I think if you look at the free throw percentage for him, you know, that's a raw number that certainly looks a lot better than 40% from the floor and 33% from three. But, I mean, his two-point percentage is at 50%, right? And you mentioned this in passing earlier, but his at-rim finishing has been really strong. And that's something that, you know, I wasn't necessarily as confident in as I was his shooting touch. And yet, you know, from what we've seen so far this year, he's been really, really good around the rim. And if a couple more of those threes fall, then, you know, again, we're talking about him as a high 30s guy rather than a low 30s guy. And all of a sudden it makes it look like he's a much better shooter when in reality, you know, a couple unlucky misses could really be much more of a driving factor in his percentage than you would want when you're trying to evaluate someone as a shooter. Yeah. And just the, his overall two-way impact and ability to affect the game in a positive manner and basically every facet of it is what's really shocked me with his game this year. Um, I, I thought he would be uh, barely below average to average defender. He's exceeded those expectations. I thought he, I didn't think he would be a good passer or playmaker at all. He's vastly exceeded those expectations. And then, the scoring has kind of been what I thought it would be. Um, obviously, the shots not fall into the level that we hoped, but he's still showing that kind of three-level scoring versatility and desire and ability to get to his spots, even though he's not generating a ton of space. So just the the fact that he's impacting the game in a positive fashion in basically every aspect is really, really encouraging and something that I was a little hesitant to buy in on coming into the year. And, you know, if you do look at it longer term, I mean, in terms of the projection from him, his growth as a playmaker this season will just dramatically open up his scoring game in the longer term because, you know, all of a sudden defenses have to worry about shutting down the passing lanes on him as opposed to just, okay, you know, we'll stick a 6-7 defensive specialist, you know, we'll stick like a Mikhail Bridges type on him and you're taking him out of the game if you do that, right? His passing growth just makes it so much harder to imagine him being, you know, taken away from the game offensively. He's still going to be able to make a positive impact, even if he's, you know, pushed off the three-point line every time. And part of that is because he's been pretty impressive around the rim. But really, a much larger part of that has been just how much his improved passing opens up the rest of his game. And it does give more credence to the idea of potentially playing him as a point guard and just Mm -hmm. that overall line of flexibility. I I do think it's going to take some time for him to really grow into that role because it always takes point guards a little bit longer because that's a really tough role to grow into in in the NBA, uh, let alone college. So down the line, maybe he can grow into that. But I I just think his overall versatility right now that he's showing is going to be able to allow whatever team he goes to to kind of implement some really creative stuff on both ends of the floor. All right. Anything you want to plug before we wrap things up here today? 
Uh, just no ceilings everything. Um, no ceilings NBA.com. Uh, no ceilings podcast feed. If you're listening to this, I'm assuming that you heard my Tuesday episode with Mark Schindler, but in case you missed it, go check it out. We broke down uh, Jairus Walker, Jed Howard, and Julian Phillips. It was a fun episode. And then Rucker and I will be back on Friday. Will you be back on Friday with a written piece as well? Uh, yes. On who? Who's to say? All right. Well, he is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at tmetcalf11. And you can, of course, find his written and podcasting work on No Ceilings NBA, as well as being able to find his written work over at Canis Hoopus. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. I will have an article going up on Thursday, so tomorrow, by the time all of y'all are listening to this. And I'm trying something a bit new with that piece, so hopefully it works out. I guess we will have to wait and see, but hopefully you can check that out as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. We're going strong on month two of the combined No Ceilings NBA podcast feed. You're getting podcasts in your feed five times a week and we would really appreciate it if anyone who has been enjoying the new format could leave a rating on whatever podcast player they might be using. If you have any feedback about the deep dives episodes of the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.